Hall Rise. Welcome to the Motorsports Ministry for all the latest hot takes and gossip around the racing industry, NASCAR, IndyCar, Formula One, and more. All right, congregation, take your seats. Here's the man, the myth, the legend, the Motorsports Minister, Armani DePaul. What a weekend of racing that is now behind us. You know what's interesting? When you have a week that I thought was going to be relatively calm for the most part i say that even though we went to a super speedway and we went to a very controversial track on the f1 side of things and yet here i was thinking it'd be a calm weekend in terms of news but of course it's never calm in the racing world we're going to be talking about the new atlanta we'll be talking about red bull's dominance and i might have a little sprinkled in third topic for you guys so without any further ado we'll jump straight into the action and talk about atlanta motor speedway or do we call it atlanta super speedway now with obviously this is year two of this new reconfiguration repavement of atlanta and look we're going to be hearing this pretty much for the next decade i feel people talking about how this new atlanta you know oh drivers love the old atlanta now they're to super speedway and they hate it. We hate this new Atlanta, this and that. Well, folks, before I go into my main point of discussion here, I'm just going to ask you this one question. What would you rather have? A brand new repaved generic mile and a half or something new, something intriguing like a super speedway? You know, obviously, put your discussions, put your, you know, your opinions on Twitter or in, you know, the discussion page of this episode. But that's what I'm trying to get at here. And I'm trying to explain to you guys why Atlanta is now a super speedway. Because regardless of the generation of car, we've seen this with the Gen 4. We saw it with the Gen 5. We saw it with the Gen 6. If you have a car, regardless of what era, and a track that is brand new repaved, we saw it with Michigan. We saw it with Texas. We saw it with Las Vegas. Where it's a brand new repaved track, the racing usually sucks. That's why Auto Club is projected to be a short track because they don't want that same scenario. We have boring racing and then the fans don't show up. Now, could it have been different with the next gen? Possibly. But two, one to two more years of old Atlanta followed by five to 10 years of just terrible racing at Atlanta. If it was the same, this isn't the NFL where you're willing to go all in on one year to win a championship. You have to go for the long term when you're talking about racetracks. Now, is this new reconfiguration of Atlanta even thinking about the long term? That remains to be seen because we saw in this past weekend where we were actually seeing some wear and aging of the track. You saw it in the Xfinity series. You saw it in the truck series where the racing actually looked different compared to the brand new repavement of Atlanta. And coming into the Cup Series race on Sunday... You know, Xfinity and Truck, they were wreck fests. They were demolition derbies, if you will. I mean, the most memorable part of the Xfinity Series race was Josh Williams getting out of his car and pulling an A-B, Antonio Brown, leaving his car in the front stretch and then piecing the crowd going into the garage. If that's your highlight for a race or for an event, 
chances are your product probably wasn't the best. So going into Sunday, we thought, and we were honestly afraid that the Cup Series race would follow in suit with the Xfinity and the Truck Series. But there is a reason that I always hammer home how different the Cup Series is to the Xfinity and the Truck Series. This probably isn't the best analogy to put, but I personally think that the gap between Xfinity and Cup is a bigger gap between collegiate football and the NFL. Because at least you guys, you got guys for the most part, at least being able to be quality starters or actual good players in the NFL. And very few times you honestly see bus. I think you see more highlight players than bus in the NFL, while the majority are, of course, just your average NFL players. However, when it comes to the cups from Xfinity to Cup, I mean, let me just give examples. 27, 2017, William Byron tears up the Xfinity series. Goes to Cup of 2018, doesn't even finish inside the top 20 in points. Then he had 2019, Daniel Hemrick, Final Four every year in the Xfinity Series. Can't even get five top 10s in Cup, loses his ride in one season. 2020, Tyler Reddick, one of the best drivers coming into the Cup Series from Xfinity, back-to-back champion, couldn't even make the playoffs. Then you have, 20, then you have 2021, Austin, not Austin, Cindric, who was the rookie of the year in 2021? Chase Briscoe. I almost forgot, I almost got them mixed up. Chase Briscoe makes it nine wins in 2020 in the Xfinity Series. Again, another finish outside the top 20. And then he had last year, 2022. Yes, Austin Cindric made the playoffs off this 500 win, but was he really a factor? No, he wasn't. He couldn't even finish inside the top 10, in 10 for 10 races on the year. So I'm trying to explain how big the gap is between Xfinity and Cup. And that is the reason why a lot of chances, just because you see a race in Xfinity, that doesn't mean the Cup race is going to translate exactly like that. That's what I'm talking about. These Cup guys know what they're doing more so than the Xfinity guys, which should be obvious because the Xfinity guys are trying to prove themselves. The Cup guys are already proven. So we should have never expected to see a similar race for the Cup guys compared to Xfinity and trucks because they're two completely different types of drivers who race in those series. Now, back to the discussion at hand. Is this new Atlanta going to work? The thing is, when it comes to a racetrack, in my opinion, you need to look to the long term. The track is, for the most part, always going to be there as long as there's funding and as long as you don't have the Karens of the world trying to demolish the track, if you would. But is the long term of Atlanta going to work? It's hard to say. I want to say no. And there is a reason for that. The lot of the talk in terms of Atlanta, honestly, a lot of it has been, is it going to work long term? Because I feel like us as fans or those in the industry, we really get caught up in the short term. But for Atlanta, it's been different. It's been, we've been talking about the long term. Not talking about how this track is going to race in the first two, three years of its existence. We already know how it's going to race. It's going to race like a baby Daytona or Talladega, like it has pretty much the the past three races that we've had there. But the long term is fascinating because it's not big enough like Daytona or Talladega. It's not even wide enough like Daytona or Talladega. And it's not as heavily banked as Daytona or Talladega. It is basically... Just generic Atlanta with steeper banks, but the banks aren't enough 
to make it a true Daytona or Talladega. So when the track ages, and we saw that the track is actually aging a lot faster than I think we might have we might have thought previously. Are we still going to see this type of Daytona, this Daytona or Talladega pack style racing at Atlanta, even going into July or even going into 2024, 2025? Because of the track ages at the rate it's at, we're not going to see that kind of pack racing that we see at Daytona or Talladega. Yes, it's a unique type of super speedway racing. That might be the appeal to some fans, but we don't know what kind of racing we're going to get in the future. Because it's such a unique track now that, what are you going to get? Are you going to get a early 2000s type of plate race where Daytona and Talladega are, you know, bumpy? So you actually have a little more finesse that you need to use for the car. Are we going to see tandem racing? We don't know what we're going to see. And look, the cup race for the most part was clean. Yeah, you had the Almirola incident. Yeah, you had the Harvick and Chastain incident. But really, besides the Chastain and Harvick incident, you really didn't have instances where the drivers were disrespectful to each other, and they were fairly clean. The last 44 laps of the race were all green. And that's something we couldn't say for Phoenix or even Las Vegas. The super speedway race was more clean than the two intermediate races, which is something fascinating to think about. But that's the thing. We don't know what the racing is going to look like in the future because of how unique Atlanta is now. Do I think it's going to work? Part of me thinks no. And the only reason I'm saying it's not going to work is because I don't know what it's going to look like. I genuinely don't. Is it going to look like an age Daytona or Talladega? Is it going to look like something completely different? Is it going to look like a mix of old Atlanta and new Atlanta? We don't know. But the fact that we don't know makes me believe that it's not going to work. Because you might get some knee-jerk reactions from SMI or from NASCAR to either have to change the package consistently at Atlanta or even, in fact, have to keep retooling with the track. And that maintenance is going to eventually lead to many costs. Now, I mentioned that the cup race is very different from Xfinity and trucks. Xfinity and trucks were a wreck fest. Cup Cup wasn't. So what do you do? Do you take Atlanta off the Xfinity and truck series schedule? What do you replace it with? Atlanta's one of the more popular tracks on the schedule, now that, especially now that it's a super speedway. So what do you do? Are you going to take make Atlanta a cup-only race? That's not going to help Atlanta. That's less tickets they can sell, less fans that are going to show up. So NASCAR and Atlanta put themselves in a very interesting situation, in my opinion, just because short-term, Everyone knew what it was going to be. It's basically going to be a baby Daytona or Talladega. But long term, who knows what it's going to be. And that uncertainty at future is why I don't think it's going to work. I don't see a clear vision for what the future of Atlanta is really going to look like. That's why I don't think it's going to work. That's why at first I thought Auto Club could work as a short track. But now that ever since we started hearing that, oh, it was going to be a half mile, then a .627 mile. Now we don't know what it's going to be. I'm leaning more towards Auto Club is done for good. I'm not saying Atlanta's going to suffer the same fate, but because of the uncertainty that we don't know what Atlanta is going to provide, even in the short term, I have my doubts with Atlanta Motor Speedway. The truly great tracks are the ones that have a short-term plan and a long-term plan. I mean, that's what Auto Club was supposed to be, and then 
things, I guess, just happen. Atlanta, it felt like there was a short-term plan, but no long-term vision. And that long-term vision, or lack thereof, is why I have my doubts for this new Atlanta Motor Speedway. Okay. So, if you're a Formula One fan, I'm pretty sure that you've heard the word dominant thrown out pretty much throughout the entirety of your time being a Formula One fan. We saw it in the Schumacher days. We saw it not that long ago in the Mercedes days. And... When these new regulations were announced and coming into the season last year where they were going to debut, there were a lot of people who were saying that this is wide open, which of course it's going to be wide open. When you have brand new regulations, of course it's going to be wide open, but they were also trying to imply that we're not going to see the domination that we saw from Mercedes. We're not going to see the domination that we even saw from Ferrari. That's what people were trying to imply. Folks, Formula One is all about domination. I'm just going to put that out there. If you're a NASCAR fan who tries to go watch Formula One, you are going to be heavily, heavily disappointed. Why? Because you're never going to see the side-by-side racing, the beating and banging. Obviously, because they're fenderless cars, they really can't beat and bang, but you're never going to see the close racing. You'll never see exciting finishes. Because these Formula One teams, they're not worried about putting on good racing. They're worried about two things. Formula One is about two things. Number one, producing the fastest car on the planet. These Formula One cars, you can go look at, I believe David Land made a video, YouTuber. Go look up David Land's Circuit of the Americas video in terms of track times. And Formula One was clear up top, but I think nearly 10 seconds. So Formula One has always been about producing the fastest car on the planet. That's number one. And number two, ingenuity. Formula One cars are meant to basically change how we view cars in general. I mean, you're really going to tell me that Ferrari, Mercedes, Renault, when Audi come in the sport, they're not going to translate things that they found in the Formula One car to their road cars? I mean, look, most of the Mercedes cars, especially on the inside, look like the Formula One cockpits that they have. So what I'm trying to say is you're never going to get a season where you'll get a couple here and there like 2021 or, you know, back in, I believe it was 2010, where you have multiple drivers in it for the championship. But more times than not, 99% of the time, you're going to get domination. And once again, we seem to have another domination, and that's from Red Bull. Now, Red Bull is a very fascinating team because they arguably the best team of the past century. You don't believe me? Red Bull, when they started, I believe in 2005, it took them, what, just a handful of years to get a win? And even then, their sister team, Toro Rosso, they got a win early. Obviously, the domination for Vettel, the four straight championships. Then, even when they weren't dominating, when they were being held up by Mercedes, When they were the second or third fastest car on the grid, at least they were still able to be competitive, compete for podiums, and get an odd win here or there. And then, obviously, now this new era regulations where they're dominant once again. So, my big question is, can anyone stop Red Bull? And I think the answer is fairly obvious. No. 
no one's been able to stop Red Bull really since the halfway point of last year. I mean, think about it. Ferrari was in contention last year for about the first eight races or so. And then they fell off. It's why Max Verstappen won the season by with four races to go and had 15 wins out of a 22-race calendar. Even his teammate, Sergio Perez, yeah, you could say he was far off Verstappen, which is true, but that's going on the conversation of just specifically the team. If we're talking about the grid as a whole, Sergio was a top three driver last year. I don't care what any of you say on how, oh, Lewis did this, Leclerc did that, Sainz did that, Russell did that. Look, at the end of the day, Sergio was still nearly in contention for second in the championship. He near, I believe he had more wins than Leclerc did. Yeah, you could say that he should have had more given Verstappen, but if we put Verstappen on a Mount Rushmore F1, if you will, then we kind of need to understand the expectations of Perez. He's there as a number two, and he's filling it great. He would be a number one in any other team. He would be a number one in Renault. He would be a number one in Aston Martin. He would be a number one, I wouldn't say for Ferrari, but he would be damn near close, closer than what Carlos Sainz is to Leclerc, I could tell you that. And I mentioned this last year, after Verstappen won his championship. Who's going to stop him? But more specifically, who's going to stop Red Bull as a whole? You saw the gap in Bahrain. You saw the gap here at Jeddah just yesterday. No one is even remotely close to catching even Sergio. In terms of the top six, which would be Ferrari, Mercedes, and Red Bull, we can include Aston Martin to make it able, stay on the top three teams. A lot of people put Sergio at number six. I don't know. Sergio was over a second clear of second play, of third place in qualifying, won the pole, and dominated. And yeah, Max started 15th, but he came up to second with pretty much at the halfway point of the race. Why was no one able to stop him? Because the Red Bull is that good. People want to talk about Aston Martin making strides. And yes, compared to where they were last year, they definitely have. But they're still nowhere close to that RB of that Red Bull car. I believe it's now the RB20, I believe. I'm not 100% sure what the name is specifically. But what are the teams that could remotely be close to Red Bull? Ferrari, I don't know. They're kind of in a new transition period. They lost their team principal last year. They got a new one, so they're trying to figure out the new culture at Ferrari. Mercedes, they haven't been able to figure out these new regulations since they they started. I mean, there's a reason Lewis Hamilton is winless throughout the entirety of this regulation period. Aston Martin, possibly they made the biggest strides out of any team not named Red Bull, but I have to see it to believe it. Just because you finish third every week, That doesn't mean that you're in contention when you're over 11 seconds off of second and first, who, of course, are Red Bull. And what about any other teams? Renault does nothing every year. People say they make strides, and the next year they fall off a cliff. Haas? I don't trust that team at all to even finish top five in the race. AlphaTauri, both of their drivers are unproven, and the team looks like they're falling off a cliff. Williams is Williams. I don't need to say anything else. Alfa Romeo, inconsistent. And McLaren, they're the definition of all hype or of all bark, no bite. So to answer my question, does can anyone stop Red Bull? No. I don't think that anyone can stop Red Bull. I think we're going to see another similar case to the previous era of cars. 
I truly do believe that we are going to see a domination period from Red Bull for the rest, for the majority of this regulation period. And then people, you know what's going to happen? People are going to complain. Then we're going to get new regulations. People are going to get excited. They're going to think, oh, yes, someone is going to stop Red Bull. And then another team is going to take over. What team could that be? Who knows? But Red Bull is just too good. They're top two in the standings. They lead the constructors. They've they started one, two, finished one, two every race. And until I get proven otherwise, I don't think anyone is stopping Red Bull racing. Okay, this final topic that I want to discuss, I'm just going to go a little bit brief on it. However, I do plan on having a bigger episode on this, possibly later in the future. I don't even I don't think I'm going to do it this Thursday, but possibly in the future. I definitely do want to talk more about this topic, and it's the idea of NASCAR's marketing. Now, again, I'm only going to go briefly on this topic, but it's interesting. I watched a YouTube video this morning. And he was mentioning how NASCAR needs superstars. If you don't know who I'm talking about, real Bradman, a fellow South Florida boy, by the way, shout out to him. He was talking about how NASCAR really doesn't have superstars. Now, I would actually like to build on that conversation that he started, which I'm going to touch briefly on in this segment. And then later on, maybe next week, I'm going to expand on it even further. But to me, NASCAR has made a lot of strides in terms of trying to get the mainstream to focus on itself, to focus on them again. The new Chicago street course, their social media has vastly improved. NASCAR's improved in a lot of ways, but there's one thing that they haven't improved on, and that's driver promotion. I was talking to my buddy NASCAR Opinion, and I told him how you can only promote the racing product so much before it eventually doesn't work. I mean, let's be honest, folks. At the end of the day, yes, us racing fans consider racing good. We wouldn't watch it if it wasn't. But to try to convince the common fan to enjoy racing, which is not a common sport, is very tricky to do. It's why just promoting the racing solely or promoting the cars solely is a very tricky task to do. Yes, you were able to do it in the past, but that's when car culture was at its peak. Car culture isn't at its peak now. It's arguably in its one of its lowest forms, one of its lowest states. So how do you do that? In my opinion, Formula One does it perfectly. You promote the drivers. You got to promote the drivers in some way. Now... I want to talk about it a little more today from a NASCAR perspective. And then later on, we'll talk about it from a team perspective because those are two completely different things. When we fans talk about that, we need to see more commercials out there like a Napa commercial with Chase Elliott or a FedEx commercial with Denny Hamlin or a Menards commercial with Ryan Blaney. Yeah, that's all fun. And, you know, that's all fun thinking about it. But NASCAR can't go over to Napa and force them to make a commercial with Chase Elliott. They can't go over to Dent Wizard and force them to make a commercial with Ryan Blaney. That's a sponsor and a team issue. And we'll discuss that at a later point. But from a NASCAR perspective, what can NASCAR do? NASCAR themselves specifically. Well, in my opinion, there's a couple things they could do. Number one, they can have the drivers go to their local local grassroots. 
Now you might be thinking, what's going to benefit them from example, taking, let's throw a name out there. Let's say taking Kyle Larson over to Livonia Speedway. What would be the benefit of that? Well, NASCAR and just the core of NASCAR is built in grassroots racing. It's not like Formula One or it's not like IndyCar where it's not really built in the grassroots as much as NASCAR is. I mean, why do you think Chase Elliott's the most popular driver in NASCAR? Because he still feels like a grassroots kind of guy. And a lot of these drivers still feel like grassroots. So that's one thing you need to do. Like take Kyle Larson over to Livonia or follow Kyle Larson at one of his dirt events and promote it. Say, hey, here's our star driver, Kyle Larson. We are following him. We are keeping track of him throughout his dirt racing. I'm pretty sure that you would get the grassroots fans who have left NASCAR for multiple years at least start to win them back if you see that, hey, we are promoting our driver from this way. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is, you know, more availability from the drivers. And what do I mean by that? Pretty much meet and greets, if you will. Now, this can also fall on the sponsor side of things. Like, for example, Joey Logano with Planet Fitness, if you will. But if you're NASCAR and you want to promote, let's say, promote the Daytona 500, have Joey Logano, have Chase Elliott, have Ryan Blaney, the current and future stars of the sport, have them go out and, you know, they don't need to be in their fire suits, but let's say have them, you know, like a NASCAR shirt or a Daytona 500 shirt or Daytona 500 hat. Have them walking around the city, going and meeting the fans, greeting with the fans. That's something NASCAR can do with the drivers to get them out there. Because at the end of the day, the drivers are people, are things that the common folk can latch on to. You think the common folk in Formula One is latched on to the Mercedes or to the Red Bull? You think they're latched on to the Jetta circuit? I'm not even latched to the Miami Grand Prix. That's also because I can't afford to go to the race because I'm not spending an arm and a leg to do it, but that's a rant for another episode. Like, my favorite driver currently is Logan Sargent. Why? Because he's from my hometown, from Fort Lauderdale. And Formula One does a good job to help promote the drivers. If I can name and remember a guy like Alex Albon or Yuki Tsunoda or Nick DeVries who race at the back of the grid... More so than I can remember like a Cody Ware or even someone who's in like the middle of the grid in NASCAR, like a Justin Haley. Formula One does a great job in promoting its drivers. Regardless, they know that the drivers are the stars of the sport and they treat them as stars. They treat them larger than life. NASCAR needs to do that, but obviously in the NASCAR way. NASCAR drivers aren't really seen as larger than life. They're seen as common folk like you or me. And NASCAR needs to take advantage of that. How would they do that? Obviously, you had that you had that um, docu-series going on last year, Race for the Championship. Yeah, it didn't really work out, but I think that's just more because of NASCAR's marketing and how they went about it. The, the docu-series itself was actually pretty good. It's just how NASCAR dispersed it was not. So just want to touch on it a little bit. Like I said, I'm going to hit on this a lot more in a later episode, but I want to get the conversation going. How can NASCAR really get itself back in the mainstream in terms of a marketing perspective? And at least in my opinion, I think it all starts with focusing a little less on the product and promoting more of the drivers as a whole. Make the drivers superstars again. 
We'll discuss more of that in a later episode. So that's going to do it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Thank you guys so much for tuning in as always. If you guys want to listen to all previous episodes of the Motorsport Ministry, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and Amazon Music, along with YouTube. You can find all of our previous episodes on those major platforms. If you want to follow me on my social media, you can follow me on Twitter and TikTok at Motor Minister. But once again, thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will see you next time.